Turn to Matthew 17. Today's message is going to be familiar to some of you. Uh, You may have heard it on a Wednesday night a couple months ago. You may have heard it in this class or at a men's retreat a couple years ago. Uh, Even so, it's kind of one of those messages that uh, I just am convinced that everyone needs to hear. And so uh, that's what we're doing today. And even if you have heard it, uh, I trust it's the kind of message you don't mind hearing again. God's Word is our focus. And my main goal this morning is to simply blow your mind with how significant the Word of God is in the Christian life. I think for many of us, we even think it's important. We know it's important, but I don't think we think it's this important. Um, So as we get going, I want you to think about something. Some of you are familiar with uh, the book and or movie Heaven is for Real. It's about a little boy who supposedly slipped from consciousness during uh, life-threatening surgery, went to heaven, survived the surgery, and lived to tell the tale. And included in his tale is that he saw Jesus face to face. Now, the book has sold some 10 million copies. Uh, the movie has earned millions upon millions of dollars at the box office. Uh, and I could go on about the story and what I think about the story. It's really not my purpose today. I simply want to point out that there is an obvious interest in such things among Christians. And perhaps among non-Christians as well. I'm sure Christians aren't the only one that have seen the movie or read the book. But even if you haven't read the book or seen the movie, maybe you can relate. Sure would be nice if I could just see him. If I could just see his hands, see the wounds, hear his voice, give him a hug, fall down at his actual feet. If only Jesus were here with me. If I could just see him and hear him and touch him. If I could just ask him a question. You know, have a conversation with him. I have questions, I have doubts. Even maybe just spend the weekend with them. That would surely be much better than than the position that we're in now. This morning I'm going to show you that that is not true. Of course, it will be best at the end of time when all has been accomplished and all of God's people are with Him, with Jesus in glory. But I'm talking about in the here and now. While God's plan of salvation is still being worked out in history, would it be better if we could see Him, hear Him, touch Him? No. In fact, we will see this morning, it is clearly better that He is away. In Matthew 17, we find an event known as the Transfiguration. Uh, I'll read Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. And it's just like stating the obvious. This is is good. Uh, If you wish... Peter still talking. If you wish, Lord, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, here's what's going on. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain by themselves. While they were there, Jesus was transfigured. He was showing them something like what He looks like now. Uh, He was changed into His glorified state, what He's going to be looking like for all eternity. It says His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. It's kind of the revelation picture that we get of Jesus. When He was transfigured, Moses and Elijah appeared. Now to a Jew, there's no one greater than Moses and Elijah. You probably know that the the Jews do not have the New Testament. You know, they did not then, they do not now. Uh, their scriptures are what we know as the Old Testament. And one way the Old Testament can be simply summarized is to call it the Law and the Prophets. So, during Jesus' day, the Law and the Prophets equals the Scriptures. And the significance of Moses and Elijah is Moses gave God's people the law and Elijah is the head of the prophets. So Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Understandably, Peter's excited when Moses and Elijah appear. And he says, Lord, this is great. Why don't I make three tents? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's thinking to himself, I knew Jesus was a big deal, but I had no idea he was this big of a deal. He's right up there with Moses and with Elijah. But while he was speaking, he got cut off by God the Father. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and God the Father spoke from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter thought Jesus was right up there with Moses and Elijah, and the clear message from God the Father was no. There won't be three tents. There is only one. This is Moses and Elijah's Lord. He is greater than Moses and Elijah. So the disciples heard God the Father speak, and they were terrified, and they fell on their faces. But while they're down on the ground, Jesus touched them, and He says to them, Rise, have no fear. They looked up, and only Jesus was there. I just want you to get this straight from this radical experience with God. The disciples saw with their own eyes Jesus transfigured into His glorified state. At the same time, they heard with their own ears God the Father speak audibly from heaven. I mean, if He did that now, we would all do the same thing they did. Fall in terror. And when they fell down in fear, they felt Jesus touch them. And He spoke to them. Okay, turn to 2 Peter 1. Second Peter, almost to the end, after Hebrews, James, First Peter. In Second Peter 1:16 and following, um, 
Peter is recounting his experience of the transfiguration. So I will read 2 Peter 1, 16-18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. You see what Peter is saying in verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty on the holy mountain. We saw Him transfigured. Verse 18. Not only did we see Him transfigured on the holy mountain, we heard God the Father's voice from heaven. Now look at verse 19. And we have something more sure. Now wait a second. That's that's an alarming statement. Something more certain. Something more sure than seeing Jesus transfigured while at the same time hearing God the Father speak audibly. There's something more sure, more certain for the believer than that. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we could spend a long time on just those few verses, but I just want to show you. In verse 19, he calls this thing that is more sure the prophetic word. In verse 20, talking about the same thing, he talks about prophecy of Scripture. Peter says we have something more sure than seeing Jesus transfigured while at the same time hearing God the Father speak audibly from heaven. We have the Holy Spirit-authored Word of God. The Scriptures. It's better that Jesus is in heaven because God's Word is more sure than if we saw Him right now. It's more certain than if we heard God the Father speak from heaven right now. That's what, that's what Peter is saying. Now, to further illustrate the point, I'm going to tell you a story about a series of events in my life uh, where I had never been more sure of God's presence. Again, some of you have heard the story. Uh, many of you have not, and I think you need to. As I tell this story, you too will be sure that God was there and that God had orchestrated the events. I don't know how you wouldn't be unless you don't have a pulse. Um, I have a friend named Billy, and Billy is in prison. He's been in, in and out of prison since he was 18. He's now 47. Just over four years ago, I was working in a church on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and my pastor wrote an article in the South Mississippi newspaper. I have the article in a plaque in my office. And the basic idea of the article is that there is grace for bad people. Uh, Jesus came to save sinners, those that have blown it and know it. Well, naturally, prisoners think that this is good. So, in response to the article, Billy writes a letter back to my pastor. Um, But my pastor was in the process of moving, so he gave me the letter. I read the letter, 
and I put it in my computer bag, and to my shame, it sat there for a few months, um, and I didn't do a thing with it. I liked the letter. It was a nice letter. I didn't do anything with it uh, until one day I pull it out again, and I read it again, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to write back. So over many weeks, Billy and I exchanged a few letters, and I remember thinking by the fourth or fifth letter, this guy is my brother in Christ. Then in the next letter... Billy told me that he had not had a visitor in 10 years. And it, uh, it broke my heart. And, you know, I vaguely remembered that there's a passage of Scripture in Hebrews or something about uh, remembering those who are in prison. You know, it's our duty. So I told Tiffany, I need to go visit this guy. He's staying in a prison about two hours from where we were living. He was in Leakesville, Mississippi, which is just beyond uh, Laurel, out into the middle of nowhere. And uh, I'll never forget that first visit. I was terrified the whole drive, the whole week leading up to the whole drive. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, And it was powerful, overwhelmingly emotional for him and for me. Think about that. He had not had a visitor in 10 years. We were in a cafeteria-type room with lots of other inmates and lots of other visitors, and we really must have been quite a scene. Uh, We hugged, we cried, we thanked God, we prayed, you know, loudly. Billy uh, shared his testimony with me. It really is an amazing story. Basically, he was always known as Wild Bill, and Wild Bill was in a gang. He's this short, scrappy white guy covered in tattoos, and apparently he was like the scrappiest dude on the block. No one wants to mess with Wild Bill. Well, one night... He's in his prison cell, and God changed his heart. He woke up. He was a new person. He had conviction over sin. He knew that he needed to repent and turn to Christ and follow him. Well, problem. One of the first things he needed to do to be faithful to the Lord is get out of the gang. But you don't just get out of the gang, apparently. They say it's blood in and blood out. So his first act of obedience is pretty threatening. So, but he knows this is what God's leading me to do. I have to go and be faithful. He goes to the leader of the gang, you know, really fearing for his life, and God delivered him. I mean, ultimately, the the leader of the gang hears him out and looks at him and just does one of these numbers and tells him to get going. And so he's out of the gang, and that's not the normal way you get out of the gang, but God delivered him. Over the next many months, Billy and I continued to write. I visited a couple more times, uh, but then Tiffany and I moved to Memphis. Billy and I continued to write when we moved, but now a visit was really not uh, possible. I mean, a day trip was five or six hours one way now as opposed to two hours one way, so it really wasn't feasible for me to visit for the day or whatever. But a few months after we moved, Billy told me um, that there was this new low-security prison in Corinth, Mississippi, and he thought, you know, maybe I'll qualify. I mean, he is a model inmate. He is a faithful brother in Christ serving the Lord in prison. So naturally, you know, he's looking to serve, which is apparently not what everyone else is doing, and uh, everyone there loves him, and and he thinks, maybe I can get a transfer. Um, he, he knew it was close to Memphis. You know, maybe we can visit if I move up there. He also has family in North Mississippi that obviously hadn't taken the trouble to go see him. But he's thinking, if I get up there, maybe they can come see me. He puts in for the transfer, uh, and he gets it. So we keep writing, and now we're able to visit again. Now, at some point, 
uh, while we were still down on the coast, Billy told me that he really wanted to be married. He just had this um, thing that he couldn't shake. He had never been married. He doesn't pretend after all that he's done that he deserves to be married. Nonetheless, he has this desire and it just won't go away. Now at the time, he had three to four years left on his sentence and I said, well, Billy, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, Just continue to pray about it and if it's from the Lord, he'll give you a wife. Of course, I'm thinking you'll be praying about it for at least three or four years and then when you get out, maybe you'll meet somebody. So, Billy, and, Billy had been in Corinth about six months, and he's been praying. It's not an all-consuming desire, but it's a regular desire on his heart. He's been praying about this desire to have a wife. One day, he's in the cafeteria during visiting hours, and, and walks this woman that catches his eye. And, you know, he thinks she's beautiful. Of course, um, he figures, well, it's either someone else's wife, or someone's mom, or someone's baby's mama. So um, he's not thinking much other than that's an attractive woman. She sits down close to him, and it turns out she is the sister of this guy that he's sitting next to, a guy that he's in prison with. Um, They don't speak much that day, but Billy ends up asking this guy about his sister, and it turns out her husband had recently died within the last couple years. Um, So Billy asks, would it be okay if I speak to her? Connie's her name. And the brother says, sure. Turns out, Connie is a godly Christian woman. In a matter of months, Billy and Connie got married. They got married in a courthouse. They were, Billy was still in prison. Billy is still in prison today. They just had their second anniversary. I just saw them a couple months ago. They're happily married. She lives 30 minutes this side of Corinth. She visits every week. Lives right down the road. They read the Bible together over the phone. Honestly, they're just a sweet Christian couple. Billy prayed for a wife. God brought him a wife. I mean, think about that. How amazing is that? Just a few years ago, there wasn't a person in the universe outside of prison that Billy had a meaningful relationship with. Now, he gets out in just a few months and he has a wife and a home to go home to. Um, But that's not all. That's not the end of the story. Really, we're just getting started. A couple years ago, just after Billy and Connie got married, um, I was down there visiting, and I was telling Billy, every time I drive to visit you, I just have this burden on my heart for a guy that I went to high school with. His name is Dan Cummings. Uh, Dan was a couple years younger than me, at Houston, but Dan and I hung out quite a bit in high school. We were into some of the same things. So uh, some of you may be familiar with the story. Dan was in a terrible accident. He was a student at Ole Miss. Uh, He was pulled over. He had drugs in the car. He didn't want to get arrested, so he sped off, and in the process, the officer was tangled up in the car, uh, was drugged to his death, and Dan was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So, um, you know, I often thought about Dan. I often thought that should have or could have been me. And uh, I just had this burden on my heart. So I'm telling Billy about Dan. And I'm telling Billy that Dan is always on my mind when I drive down to see him. Uh, And I was just burdened for him. I I heard that Dan wasn't doing well. I was just telling Billy about him. I, I knew that he would pray for him, you know, could understand kind of what he was going through. 
And as I'm telling Billy about Dan, Billy stops me and he says, you talking about Daniel Cummins? Like Ole Miss student, Daniel Cummins? Yeah, Billy, that's him. Then Billy said, he just got shipped to Corinth and he's my roommate. We're staying on the same block and he sleeps in the bed next to me. I could hardly speak. I, I can hardly speak when I think about it now. Uh, I felt like God was so close to me that it scared me. Now, this happened a couple years ago. Uh, Dan was there a few months. Since then, he's been transferred to another prison. That's another story for another time. The point that I'm trying to make to you today is that I had never in my life been more sure of God's presence in my life than at that moment, at that table, in a prison in Mississippi. I'm sitting across from Billy and his wife, Connie. And I just told you about how that happened. I mean, try to trace that out. What if you don't get the letter out of your briefcase? And what if you don't make that first visit? And what if he doesn't get the transfer? And all these things, you just see the hand of God and His providence. And then I'm telling Billy and Connie that I've got a burden for this guy, Dan. I want Billy to pray for him. And he's like, I can one-up you. I can talk to him. I mean, see him all the time. I had never been more sure of God's presence. Now, I want you to think about this. How much more sure of God's presence do you think Peter and James and John were when they saw Jesus transfigured on the holy mountain and heard audibly God the Father speak from heaven? In all that I experienced that day, that didn't happen. I didn't see Jesus, I didn't hear God speak. I was as sure as I had ever been in my life. They were more sure than that. And in 2 Peter 1, Peter says the Scriptures are even more sure than that. I was sure. Peter, James, and John were more sure. The Scriptures are even more sure. More sure than any experience with God that you or I could ever have. More sure then the experience of all experiences with God, the transfiguration. We have something more certain. The Word of God. It's better that Jesus is away right now because we have His Word. Um, a few applications that I want to make, and then if you're able to talk, then you hear from you. It's an amazing story. Uh, but more amazing to me is... Even that day as I'm driving back, God brought this scripture to mind. He's like, I'm not going to let this experience with me go to waste. Uh, so that you can connect how important the Word of God is. So the first application, it's not that personal experiences with God are bad. I, for one, am regularly very thankful for that experience with God that I just told you about. But those kinds of experiences are not the norm. And even if they were, the Word of God is more sure than any experience we could ever have. God is not going to give you a sign. He's given you His Word. And even if He did give you a sign, the Word of God is more sure than a sign. Number two, I bet if Jesus were speaking 
somewhere, anywhere on the planet next weekend, many of us would do what we had to do to get there. You know? Want to hear him speak? I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Um, but every week, think about this, can, with what this is saying about the Word of God, every week, Sunday and Wednesday, we open the Scriptures together. And the Word of God is more sure than if we were to see Jesus face to face and hear God the Father speak audibly from heaven. We would make the sacrifices to go to Africa if that's where He was speaking. Surely we should make sacrifices to get here every Sunday and Wednesday to hear from His Word. The Scriptures are more sure. Number three, uh, personal Bible study. You know, a while back, one of the pastors here, John Otley, was telling the staff about a survey uh, given in a church somewhere a few years back. And and what they discovered um, is that the single most catalytic spiritual discipline, the, the single thing that catapulted people into new growth like never before, was personal Bible study. And they said not just Bible reading. Here's the, here's the quote from the survey. Reflection, reflection on Scripture is twice as catalytic as any other factor. Um, so to reflect on it. Of course, to reflect on it, we have to read it, uh, but we also have to interact with it. You know, thinking about this, we have an affinity for the big and the glamorous. The transfiguration, honestly, would be right up our alley, and you could sell tickets for a pretty expensive price. But the reality is the path to spiritual maturity is a whole lot more normal than the transfiguration. And by normal, I don't mean worse. It's not flashy, but very clearly it is better. The Word of God is more sure. Um, You know, I want to talk about this often in here. I try to. There are a lot of resources out there for personal Bible study. But if you're honest, many of you, if I were to recommend a book or even give you a book today, you're like, dude, I already feel underwater. I'm not going to read that book. Uh, And then I'm just going to feel more underwater. So I'm trying to take that into consideration. And if you can relate like everyone in here can, especially in a busy time of life, to struggle to... regularly be in the Word of God, I have some recommendations for you. Number one, carve out 30 minutes somewhere in your day. I know that the time could be, you know, just start with seven minutes. That may be true, but honestly, it's going to take 30 to get seven. I mean, you're going to have to sit down, and you're going to have to get adjusted, and you're going to have to find your place, and you're going to have to, you know, uh, I'm thinking about that other thing, and get focused. And so I'm just saying 30 minutes is the minimum of what it's going to take to, to carve out of your day. Um, morning is best for me because nothing is happening yet. And if I'm honest, at the end of the day, I'm beat or something has come up or uh, whatever. Now morning means you have to wake up a little earlier. Um, it also starts my day in fellowship with God. I don't know about y'all, but I wake up and my sinful flesh is roaring. I mean, the times when temptations are most vivid and clear and compelling are honestly within the first three seconds of opening my eyes. And so, what, what this morning devotional time affords me is the opportunity to confess these things that are raging around inside of me and also, hopefully, to start the day in fellowship with God in, in hopes that that continues throughout the day and kind of establishes this, this culture of prayer and fellowship with Him that I want to live in. 
Um, maybe evening is better for you. But if that's the case, you know, maybe you can find 30 minutes easier in the evening uh, than in the morning. But if that's the case, I would encourage you to at least spend a couple minutes in prayer when you wake up for those reasons that I just mentioned. Um, if you don't know where to start, start with the Gospel of John. Just, you know, don't, don't try to kill it. Just half a chapter, chapter, a little more than a chapter each day. Um, and when you're done with that, just ask me. I'll, I'll tell you somewhere to go next. Um, the most important thing is to keep showing up each day. Whether or not you feel like you're getting something, keep showing up. 30 minutes. You know, pray to prepare your heart, read the passage. Uh, again, maybe a chapter, maybe a little more, a little less. Stop. Just take a minute or two to reflect on what you've just read. Kind of like, you know, you're reading the Second Peter passage, you go, wait a second, we were with him on the holy mountain. What is he talking about? Um, and once you've kind of processed what it is that you've read, remember, reflection on Scripture is the single most catalytic spiritual discipline to launch you into spiritual growth. Then ask yourself, how does this change the way I think? How does this change the way I feel? How does this change the way that I'm supposed to act? And then pray to ask God to apply these truths to your heart and to your life. Uh, Number four, think about this for the implications for evangelism and discipleship. For, you know, the Great Commission at its core is a ministry of the Word. Go and make disciples, Jesus said, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We have to reach new people. We have to get them in the Word. And uh, the Great Commission is not just for pastors. We all have a role to play in the making of new disciples. Now, you may not feel like you're at a place where you could teach someone uh, in the sense that I teach. You know, go in 30 minutes or whatever it is. And that's fine. But you could read through the Bible with someone else. And in so doing, I bet you, you would be surprised at how much you know when questions arise. Honestly, that's the way we grow, is is we get in places where we've never been before. It feels uncomfortable. We're getting stretched. But then there's somebody that's asking me something. It's like, oh, I remember that from class or from the sermon or whatever. Uh, I've told you about the pastor in Dubai. Remember, he's in Dubai. I mean, it's it's a non-Christian culture and you don't just invite people to church, you know, and they say, oh, great. They're Muslim. You know, they're not coming. But so you have to share Christ and either they get converted and come to church or they don't come to church. Um, But he said, very evangelistic guy, he said that the single most fruitful method of evangelism that they have seen is inviting someone to study the Bible with you outside of the church. Um, You know, the pressure's off at that point to have a home run conversation. It gives time for questions, and it gets them in front of the Word of God. So last fall, I challenge you to find someone by Christmas that you would um, that that is not walking closely with the Lord, and that you would invite to study the Bible with you. And I'll just kind of uh, tweak the challenge. Uh, maybe you've done that, but if not, by summer, let's find someone uh, and invite them to read a book of the Bible with you. Don't know where to start? Start with the Gospel of John. You know, maybe you're looking at your life and going, dude, there's no way I have time to carve out this regular, you know, you want me to carve out 30 minutes? You want me to carve out, you know, where where am I going to? I mean, that's where uh, 
texting and these kinds of things can be useful. Maybe you get together once a month and maybe you just keep you know, in touch through text or whatever if it's not reasonable. But just trying to give you ideas. The Word of God is the ordinary means that God uses to bring people to Christ. If we want to see people get converted, we have to get them in front of the Word. Um, I mentioned these young guys on this high school trip. I mean, a big part of it was being invited into something. But ultimately, what they were being invited into is, yes, fellowship, but also the thing that is so challenging them and convicting them is the Word. They've, they've come face to face with the reality of who we are and who God is according to His Word. And um, it's just a, a good picture of how these things work. And lastly, um, for those that are suffering... I know that when you're in the middle of a trial, you often don't have much energy. You often don't have much ability to focus for very long periods of time. And, and I mean, there's low-grade sufferings that are just kind of the constant uh, toil of having little kids or, you know, going through other things that are maybe more deeply, acutely painful, um, whatever it is. When we are suffering, particularly, I think we could tend to think, if God would just show me something, if He would just give me a sign and let me know that I'll be okay, He is not going to speak to you audibly. Um, And again, He's probably not going to give you a sign. But even if He did, the Word of God would be more sure than the sign. I know it's hard, but particularly when we're hurting, we have to fight to get into the Word. Uh, A recommendation, something that I've been doing recently and I've just found uh, rich is to read and pray through the Psalms. You know, the Psalms uh, are for singing and praying. And uh, I'm usually not singing there by myself in the morning, but I am praying them. And uh, just take a Psalm each day. It'd be good whether or not you're suffering. But um, read through and pray through the Psalms and it's... uh, it's, it's rich. Until he returns at the end, it is better that Jesus is away because we have his word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, you are the sovereign of heaven. You uh, orchestrate every time and season and second of our lives. And sometimes we're able to trace those things out and see how you're at work for not only our good, but others uh, as well. Lord, it's amazing to think at just that, how you put those pieces together with my friend Billy and with Dan. It reminds me again today to pray for Dan, Lord. I pray that you would uh, bless him. I pray that you would pour out your grace upon him. I pray that you would uh, heal him and help him. Um, Even that he's moved on, would you bring another Billy into his life that will minister to him and strengthen him and uh, ultimately that Dan would find great comfort in Christ and the hope of uh, salvation in Christ. Lord, I pray for Billy and Connie as they prepare to get out. Uh, I pray that you would just prepare their hearts for great joy in fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Uh, provide for them a good church home and, and just uh, cause them to rejoice and worship you at uh, what you've done in their lives. And Lord, for us, uh, I pray that today would serve to the end, not just that we remember a good story. I pray that we would remember the story uh, to the end that we would be amazed at how 
amazing and uh, certain and sure uh, your word is, how we can be confident in it and uh, live our lives in submission to it. We do pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, does anybody have any thoughts and questions before we jet? I got one question for you, and then we'll leave. Um, So let's say you have someone, and I've heard this uh, quite a few times. So let's say you have someone that, that tells you, just trying to flesh this out. They say, you know, personal testimony is the most powerful thing. I mean, it's just, that's the best thing you can share with somebody. Uh, No one can argue with your testimony. You know, that experience with God, no one can take that away from you. What would you say in response? No, the word's better. That's good. Why would you say that? My pastor said, uh, well, but all I want to, you know, you have a place that you can go to show them and and to say here in second Peter or first Peter two, Peter's recalling this great experience. I mean, an experience like you and I've never had. My testimony doesn't match up to this. Um, But even in light of the experience of all experiences, he says the word of God is more sure than that. Has greater credibility than you do. That's right. That's good. Um, and again, that's not to make light of the impact of personal experience. I think the story with Billy is, is quite amazing and uh, impactful, but the word is even more sure than that. Uh, one last thought. I wasn't here last week, but I understand that uh, one of the things that we'll talk to you about was the need to be foolish for Christ. And, uh, you know, it's not comfortable ever to put yourself out there. It's not. I know it's not. Um, But people's eternities are hanging in the balance. And uh, it's worth getting uncomfortable. I think this is one of the least uh, confrontational ways to try to influence and... uh, engage in someone's life is to invite them to study the Bible. I think a lot of people would be open to that. So there it is. Anyone else? Okay. Good day.